Bet you I can dance better than you. I bet you you don't know. Two plus two, it's four, it's four. Now go and shut the door, cause nobody wants to see your face no more. I'm tough as nails, you're slower than a snail. I beat up every single person in jail. Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher, and today we have the infamous Warren McGrew on. Now, he's famous because he just debated J.D. Martin on uh, total depravity. Is total depravity biblical? Warren McGrew, do you have anything to add to that? You want to tell us about yourself a little? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a very boring individual. My passions are theology and uh, my family, and, and uh, um, I, I run Idol Killer. And uh, there's, there's really not much there. Like I said, I'm a, I'm a very boring individual, but uh, I'll try to be uh, uh, engaging and, and uh, an entertaining guest for you, but I'll, I'll do my best. So today we are going to be talking about Psalms 51.5, a very infamous verse for total depravity. Uh, Warren, uh, you had uh, talked about this verse a little bit in your debate and in the comments, I just started cursing you out, yelling at you, saying you're absolutely wrong about everything you believe about this verse. You should be ashamed of yourself. And uh, you were in tears. You called me. You said, let's just discuss this out, hash this out like rational adults. And I said, fine. I my, threw down my computer. <laughs> still covered in tears. It's still, it's still wet. It's still wet. Still, still covered in tears. So, yeah, yeah this, this verse is traditionally used by Calvinists. I actually pulled up Calvin uh, so we could read Calvin what he says about this. Calvin's always interesting to read because even though you might not agree with him, he always says interesting things. And uh, he, he is a scholar of the language. He understands Hebrew. He understands Greek. He's not like Augustine. Augustine didn't know a Greek at all. He didn't care for Greek. He just like used Latin. Uh, but Calvin was a scholar, so he's worth considering. And his view of this verse seems to be, in my estimation, the prevailing reading. I don't know. Is that your estimation with the people you deal with? Boy, uh, it, you know, it depends on whatever is most expedient to their argument. <laughs> <laughs> and so in, in Psalms 51.5, uh, we have the context of a psalm written in light of David's sin with Bathsheba, where he, he killed, David killed Uriah the Hittite in order to cover up his adultery with Uriah the Hittite's wife, which is a capital crime in, back in the days of Israel. If you had sex with another man's wife, you would be put to death. And so this psalm is a psalm of remorse, of repentance, of regret. And we come to verse 5, and uh, I'll, I'll read verse 5 to start us out here. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin did my mother conceive me. And so we turn to Calvin. Here's what he says. He says, Behold, I was born in iniquity. He now proceeds further than the mere acknowledgement of one of many sins, confessing he was brought, that he brought nothing but sin with him into the world and that his nature was entirely depraved. Total depravity. Mm. He is thus led by the consideration of one offense of peculiar atrocity to the conclusion that he was born in iniquity and was absolutely destitute of all spiritual good. Yeah, you, you get born in this world and because you're of Adam, your nature is completely corrupt and 
Uh, now you, you can't can't produce any spiritual good if there's a heathen if there's a pagan and she shelters her kid in a storm and dies protecting her kid that's not really a spiritual good in this system that's just uh someone acting selfishly or still against god not pleasing to god because in calvinism you cannot please god unless uh, you have the special enlightening you have to you have to get the special calling, and then only can you please God. Of course, they think God's impassable, so you have to square those attributes. He, uh, Calvin says, indeed, every sin should convince us of the general truth of corruption of our nature. And there's some stuff I'm skipping, so we're scrolling down. This passage affords a striking testimony and proof of original sin entailed by Adam upon the whole human family. It's funny in your debate. Your debate was uh, it, t it turned out to be kind of about original sin, and JD was completely unprepared for that. So much so that uh, he he acted more hostilely than he usually does. I th I think it was due to shock. I, I think that's actually what happened in the debate, which gave you a great advantage in talking about these issues. You know, one of the, one of the things as I was reflecting on the debate, I really started to feel uh, almost almost ashamed. Because when I was coming out of Calvinism, I was, I was really blessed to be able to process these things in the privacy of my own home before the Lord with my scriptures, not with a webcam, with an audience watching. And I think that some of the things that I presented to JD, I don't think that he had really considered those things. Uh, and I think that that challenged his, his pre pre uh, uh, presuppositions from, from a Calvinist standpoint. Um, and I also think that associating these challenges coming from what he perceived to be a, a Pelagian heretic only added salt in the wound. And I think that that's why we saw the reaction we did. I will say, I love, I love JD. I don't want to kick him while yeah. he's down. He, you know, I, he, he's I, a good I guy. <laughs> he is. And, and if you saw, if you saw his apology video, um, he never named the individual that he was uh, channeling. I think you and I both know that man wears really nice sweaters. Um, but I would say that I would I would have to say that uh, JD lowered himself when he tried to channel that individual because from what I've seen JD is, is much more uh, mature and reasonable and uh, and I think that was to his detriment. But I understand why he did it. But I I had nothing at the time that I perceived any ill will uh, or take any insult. It was only after the fact the next day when I read his apology I was like. Should I have been? <laughs> you know, like I said, I'm kind of boring and a little thick-headed and a little focused on the topic in front of me. So maybe, maybe my filters were a little up. Yeah, well, Calvin, he he stoops that low too. The last part of his paragraph I got pulled up here is uh, talking about Calvin or Pelagius. All those darn Pelagians, he he says. Mm -hmm. He says it was therefore a gross error in Pelagius to deny that sin was hereditary, descending in the human family by contagion. So he says that it was an error of Pelagius that sin is not hereditary. Sin's not in our DNA. Which you know, anytime someone talks about Pelagius, there's there's always the question: Is did Pelagius actually even teach that? A lot of times uh, they're going based on what his critics said about him. So I'd be interested if anyone has the actual Pelagius quotes to, to prove any of these claims about Pelagius. Those would be interesting. It's It seems to no, me. Absolutely. I mean, you, you, I hear this all the time. You're a Pelagian. I go, what did, what, did, what did he teach? And then as I started researching it because of the accusations, I was like, this man, the only two times he was interviewed before the assembly was declared orthodox. 
uh, he was guilty after being tried in absentia and, and having a caricature of his beliefs presented by his political opponents. And, and, you know, the more I study Pelagianism, I'm convinced that it doesn't exist because not only do they deny that original sin or, or guilt and all of these things are hereditary, but they also supposedly deny man needs God or his grace. So who, who would deny that man needs God or his grace? I mean, the only thing that comes to mind would be an atheist. From, from my readings of Pelagius, trying to read his direct works, it seems that Pelagius has more in common with these Calvinists than me, actually. And so <laughs> I guess I could accuse them of being Pelagians. I don't know. But uh, that's pretty funny. So this is Calvin's take. And so today, what we hope to do is go over some various Jewish readings and uh, cover Walter Brueggemann's reading, which is my reading. I think that tends to be the most reasonable reading, but I think you side with some, not the Jewish readings are all over the place is what we're going to learn today, but you side with a particular Jewish reading of this text, which might not be obvious in this text. And so you, you, you're going to be able to make your case today why your particular reading. I'm going to try. Yeah. <laughs> So I guess we could just start reading. Well, we'll start with uh, verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so th this is setting up the situation. This is uh, David and his uh, remorse, his regret due to that situation. So that situation can be brought in to inform us in some respect of uh, David's mentality here, what he's talking about. But uh, the ver first verse concludes, this is where David starts writing, Have mercy on me, O God, we're reading from the ESV, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. I always think those, uh, those statements like blot out my transgressions, th those are interesting. It uh, suggests a divine book of a list of sins and the image being put up there is that this this sin is just struck struck in from the record and no longer remembered. Remember throughout the Bible, the Bible always talk about uh, God will remember your sins no more. And so kind of the same thought pattern going on here. So is it literally? No, I, I absolutely see it the same way. I mean, absolutely. It's yeah. the same sort of imagery. And, um, you know, I think about uh, a parallel, which I, I don't know if this would be a sidetrack, but the book of life and Blot out my, you know, my enemies from you know your book of life, um, and then you see this list of records, um, you know. But, but yeah, absolutely, I, I, I yeah. see the same. So the question is: It literal? Is it figurative? Is it uh, just idiomatic speech? Meaning, don't account my sins to me. Is there a divine book? All, all valid questions, but not necessarily the topic of today's discussion. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. And so I, th I think what's going on here so far is he is acknowledging deep personal sin. I, I would think you would agree with me there. And I, I think that that's a call out to some of the early uh, Jewish prefigures or, or, or forerunners to baptism. Uh, there was, you know, you, you have like Naaman washing himself and there were these uh, purity rituals he's asking God to, to purify him. So that, that's something that I would say is an addition, but I, I think it's perhaps legitimate from that reading. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. So I, th I think what's going on here is 
when you sin or screw up really badly, maybe you're at work and you do something utterly stupid and you feel like an idiot and then you're just thinking about it all day long, uh, your your uh, transgression, your screw up, and your it, it's just a constant thought in his mind. This is weighing heavily on his soul. Is is that uh, your takeaway there? But also that not only is it his conscience and his soul, but likely uh, his wife carrying their unborn child is walking around in front of him, and there's just there's not a place that he can look that he's not reminded of of the sin that led to this. Are we talking about the child who died or Solomon? No, the, the child who died. Okay. Against you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I don't think it's saying that he didn't sin against uh, uh, Uriah the Hittite. I no, think no, murdering it, someone's not a sin against them. <laughs> murdering is not a sin <laughs> no, against I, them. I, I agree with you. Yeah. yeah, and have done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I think he's, instead of saying, I've, I've only sinned against you, God, instead he's saying, I'm putting myself in front of you, my sin in front of you, Lord. I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's supposed to be limited just to a sin against God, if that makes sense. Well, if you if you look at even murder, you're you're destroying uh, an image bearer of God, who God created in His image and likeness. Um, and so, while it is a sin against them, but it, it's also an attack on the very image of God. All right, so Psalms 51.5, here's our famous verse. It's funny, in the Jewish version, let, let's uh, let's grab out that uh, Jewish commentary that I got pulled up. Oh, I don't got it pulled up anymore. But uh, it's actually verse 7, so they have a different numbering scheme. Uh, but in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Okay, so this is the verse in discussion. We'll kind of read after the verse as well. Behold, you delight in the truth, uh, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So he's, he's he switches from statements about his sin uh, to the birth statement, and then to being taught about God's truth, righteousness, love. Purge me with a hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So it seems like he's asking for forgiveness, for purification. Hide your face from my sins. This is a pretty common figure of speech, a, a phrase that you find throughout the Bible. God showing his face or hiding his face. Like, forget my sins and blot out all my iniquities. We got the blotting out language again. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. So it moves in from personal regret, uh, lamentations, uh, utter sorrowness, to requests for renewal. All right, I think we could kind of stop there and then uh, scroll back to verse 5 and kind of talk about what's going on there. So let's, let's pull up uh, some different Jewish readings of this. And uh, this is my best guess of what's going on in Metzudat David because I had to translate it from the Hebrew. And I don't read Hebrew, and my dad's not handy to help me out here, so I had to use Google Translate. But basically... Hey, I'm, I'm in trouble without getting here. Yeah, no, I, I understand. <laughs> right, so uh, it, my, his reading seems to be that uh, David's claiming his mother had some sort of sexual desire or urges when he was uh, in utero. And that uh, while she was having him, she had some sort of sexual experience. Which, 
looking at uh, this, um, is it a possible reading? I would say yes, it is possible. But um, but the question would be, why the heck is he talking about it? <laughs> what 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 purpose does it add to his overall a point that he's trying to communicate? This seems to be a communication between David and God. It seems to be very a personal communication between David and God, and a very personal connection. And so then he's talking about some weird experience that is his mother must have told him about at some point. It's like uh, when I was having that would be a fun conversation. Like <laughs> mom, please stop. <laughs> like please, I don't. I don't want to hear this. Right now. <laughs> please wash me with this. Wash out my ears. You know, like, <laughs> like no, mom, don't do it. And uh, granted, I my mom tried to have some of those conversations with us boys and they were very awkward it's like what what are we doing here so it is possible <laughs> i i just i don't i don't see what it adds to his overall point i don't see how it reinforces the immediate narrative right mm -hmm. i i just i just don't see it so although it's a possibility i'm gonna rig it low probability and agreed Okay, so Radek is the next person that I have uh, pulled up here. And his view seems to be that the righteous people have righteous children and the sinful people have sinful children. That this is a statement about inheritability of general characteristics uh, through genetics. Uh, does that seem like a uh, good reading to you? No, I mean, I, I, if, if anything, I, I, I would say maybe, maybe that rabbi was was trying to say that uh, it was an environment that you raise righteous children, but uh, even giving him the most gracious of interpretations, I, I don't see how that applies here at all. I would say it is more probable than our previous one, and here's why. Because if David's talking about how wicked he is, the depths of his transgressions, he might, he might be saying, my character is bad and it's not it's not to excuse him it's not excusing him he's just saying i i know i've sinned i'm a bad guy i i'm so sorry uh please forgive me wash me make me whole and so there might be contrast here between i'm a bad guy wash me and make me clean and so it might it might be reinforced by the context so i i would say this is the highest probability one we've discussed so far more so than calvin <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't think Calvin his uh, his reading on this is uh, probable because what, what 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 would be going on there? He's talking about you know my sins before my eyes. I've done things that are evil. Oh, by the way, um, I have this DNA that made me totally depraved from Adam. No, uh, I I that would seem more of an excuse. By the way, that I couldn't do anything right whatsoever. Now purify me, enlighten me, give me the spiritual enlightening to allow Some me to Some new DNA, perhaps. Yeah. It's, I, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be reinforced by the context. It, that, that would be awkward and out of place. So if, if you are, let's say you sin against someone and you go to them for repentance and you say, that, uh, yeah, I, I, I did this and it was wrong. I've been thinking about it all day. It's uh, consumed me night and day. Uh, I have fevered dreams about this wrong that I've done to you. 
oh, by the way, I couldn't help but doing this otherwise. I understand that I'm totally depraved and I need a special spiritual enlightening in order not to do this. That it, it, it lessens the force of what's being communicated. And no, I mean, it, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Your mom made you so ugly. I mean, that's kind of what it reminds me when you get in trouble, you know, when you were a kid in school and you were insulting your friend and the teacher would say, you need to apologize. You'd say, I'm sorry. Your mom made you so ugly. It, it's not really an apology. Yeah, I, I think it's going too far. So our last example is just basically, I'm a thug, I'm a lowlife. And this one's like, I am metaphysically fated to be what I am. I think that goes too far in context um, at what's being communicated here. I, I think that would negate the overall thrust of this passage. All right, so let's let's go to the next one I found. This is uh, Rabbinu. Yoah, probably Jonah, yeah, Jonah, man has an evil impulse, which can be overcome by studying the Bible. This one was actually pretty funny. It's basically like all men are kind of corrupt. And so you got to fight this corruptness by reading the Bible. I, like, think, I think that's probably a call out to the Yetzer, uh, depending on what Jewish line you're on. A lot of them believe that, that that was the good impulse that God gave you. Some believe that they're born with evil impulses until they turn 13. Um, but I think the consensus is that that's just simply the God-given appetite to hunger, to thirst, to desire a family. Um, and so I think that I think that he's probably that's probably a call out to uh, rabbinic views on on the Yetzer. But um, I, I don't I don't see that as as making a whole lot of sense given the context. But but perhaps because uh, David did. Um, he did have sexual desires with Bathsheba. That would be the Yetzer. Uh, he desired to have her, and uh, you know there was some power there that he implemented, and so that his murder of Uriah could be a result of perhaps that understanding of the Yetzer. But um, I don't. I don't think that that really fits quite well with, with what's going on, given given what they're right. So. What, what I see as a really big problem with these universal statements of man is if they're universal, they're not personal. <laughs> it's like all men are corrupted, and you're just going to throw that in a psalm, uh, pouring your heart out to God about your transgression. Oh, you're confessing your adultery to your wife and saying, but all men cheat. Yeah, all men are all evil. Men cheat. And you go, I'm sorry, but it's something we all do. And you're gonna, your wife is is gonna say, oh, you're you're forgiven, you know? Yeah, yeah. you say because it's accusing God of making you. I mean, you could make the case. You could say, well, an evolution has hardwired mankind to <laughs> seek out to spread his seed far and wide, yeah. yeah, with as many mates as possible. So I could not help it, but do this. That would be maybe the worst apology ever. So if. <laughs> Where's the hallmark on that one? You know, like, where do you get that at the store? <laughs> oh, that would be a good hallmark card. But uh, if if this verse is generally applicable to all people regardless, rather than specific groups or specific individual, that dilutes the force, the thrust of what's going on here and comes off more of, of a apology rather than a personal repentance. And so... 
I, I would tend to, in Psalms about David, David was very passionate. You read through the Psalms, you, you feel you feel his passion, his desire. It's no wonder that the Bible says that King David is a man after God's own heart. I mean, who else is that applied to in the Bible? David has extreme emotions, extreme passions. I don't think he's saying, everyone's like me, Lord. I, I don't think he's doing that in almost anything that he writes. And in Psalms 139, I, I don't think that's what's going on there. I think he talks very much about his personal relationship with God. He talks about who he is as an individual. And I think it's a huge mistake for us to take his Psalms and we say, hey, that's me. <laughs> like, like I'm equivalent to King David. I got the same relationship with God as King David. I, I don't think so. No. I, I, Remember that time we killed that giant? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, there, there, there's some things there that are, that are unique. All right. So moving on to the next one. Okay, so this is S. Forno. The parents had sex not to satisfy God, but their own desires. And so this is like the Catholic idea that you can't have sex for pleasure. You have to have sex for like procreation, but not because, not because you enjoy sex. Sex is, uh, I guess, it's a bad thing. So do, you know the dates, do you know the dates for when these uh, opinions are, are attributed? I think this guy's like the 1400s, but... Yeah, I was going to say, this This strikes me as though it's a Jewish response to Augustinian uh, thought more than it is uh, classic you know, rabbinic literature. Yeah, so th th these rabbis, when you look them up, they're all over the place in date ranges, and uh, they're all over the place in opinions. And so when people quote rabbinic opinion for any reading of any verse... Uh, it, well, it shows you a possible reading, but it doesn't show you either general Jewish consensus because there was none, uh, and it doesn't show you definitive truth. It just shows you an option about what one guy wanted to read at one point in time. And uh, other than that, you know, they're interesting. They're interesting for possibilities, but I wouldn't put too much stock in them having direct access to truth. Yeah. So, uh, again, I, I think some of the same problems come along with this reading of this. In sin did my mother conceive. What's what's he doing? Is he saying, well, my, my parents, they had sex to satisfy their desires. And so what, what does that add to the immediate point? A lot of times these Jewish, Jewish commentators, I think they, just like you pointed out, they're responding to a specific issue that's going on in their community and they're looking for proof texts. And so they don't do any contextual analysis. They, they find a phrase that they, they like and they say, hey, this is about my particular issue that I want to talk about. And then they talk about that issue using it as a proof text. So they were deep into proof texting. It's, it's not a contextual analysis. I, what, would, what would that add to this entire point? Yeah. So if I was ranking things, I'd put this one as uh, probably the worst one so far, even more so than my mother had sexual feelings while giving birth, because I think that one attempts to at least address some of the idioms going on here. One of these Hebrew phrases are like, my mother was warmed by me. And so it's trying to use that as like a sexual, I don't know. But well, I think, I think, it's, I think it's how they understand Yacham, which is uh, the word translated as conceived. And they're trying to fit that in with like an Augustinian paradigm and give like the the, the 
Jewish equivalent or, or, or an answer at that time that would be relevant. And I, I think that they're just really grasping at straws. One of the things is, is like when you talk to modern day rabbis, a lot of them will say, yeah, this rabbinic literature uh, was just their efforts to counter the, uh, the Christian movement. Yeah, I think you have a lot of that. I had uh, Dov Weiss on the program, and he, he talked about that as uh, a lot of early Jewish writings was a response to Gnostic questions and Gnostic issues. And mm -hmm. so I, th I think you are going to find a lot of that in there. Let's, let's go to this last one, this Steinsaltz. David was conceived near the time of his mother's period, which is a, a legitimate biblical concern. It was actually a death penalty offense to be having sex with women during their time of period and within the prophets i don't have the exact reference offhand god is threatening to destroy all of israel because this is becoming a common practice having sex with women during the time of their periods and so he, he brings up a legitimate concern but the question is if this is the case um what does it add to the text that my mother and my father engaged in uh, illicit sexual relationship. And so how does that reinforce the point of the narrative? I think you probably should be defending this because your view will cover next, which is kind of similar that there was some sort of sexual liaison going on here that was improper. Yeah, you would, you would think that I would be defending this. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I try to be as honest with the text as I can and, and not just grasp at straws. The one thing that I would point out, though, that you find common through all of these, or at least the ones that I can read, my screen's a little blurry, is that they are dealing with sexual sins. And I think that all kind of comes back to the Yaham, which is, uh, like I said, the Hebrew word for conceive, which we'll explore when it gets to be my turn. But I think that being on that and trying to counter what they're seeing within Christianity, but that I think present through all of that is this theme of... Uh, of sex. And, uh, and I'll explain how that relates to mine in a, in a moment. All right. Well, we could just, uh, I guess, well, I'll say that is a possibility. And if the arguments for whatever view that you are going to propose next are true, that makes this one also more of a probability. So ranking these, I think uh, parents had sex for their own desires. I think that's the lowest probability. His mother had some sexual turnings when she's given birth. I think that's the next highest. I, I think Calvin probably might be on the same level. A total depravity. Either either David's mother had a sexual desire while giving birth or total depravity. Those could be on about the same level. Here's the funny thing. That uh, Calvinists think this is their definitive proof text for their view. And here we got uh, five listed here. Six if you include Calvin. Seven if you include Walter Bergman. Eight including yours. So there's eight uh, different, entirely different readings. What what evidence do they have? This isn't this isn't exhaustive either. There's there's several others as well. So I mean, I uh, I, I would say that we're, we're probably approaching a dozen if we took the time to list all of them. Right. So uh, here's the thing about these proof texts: is uh, do they actually say what the proof text holder claims that they say, or are there alternative other readings? Do they do they know the other readings? So what is Calvin? He he addresses a couple of them. But uh, it seems like a lot of them he just lets go, which I, I understand if you're writing a book, you can't address every single criticism or reading of every single verse. You'll be there forever. Your entire book is going to be about one verse. There, there's entire uh, books uh, written about Genesis 1. 
Understood, understood. But we, we can't dismiss the other readings out of hand and we have to consider them. That's why we need to make a positive case for our reading of any proof text using the context. Why does this proof text mean what I say it means? And reading the proof text doesn't help us as we see here. It's, there's, there's just too many readings. It's just, it's all over the place too. That It's not only that there's different readings, but they're all over the place. There's a wide spectrum of reading from nature and character of man to, to weird, obscure Jewish laws and rules to weird uh, familial situations to uh, you know, like the mother having uh, some sort of urge during birth, something like that. They're all <laughs> over the place. But we'll, we'll transition to you. Uh, we'll, we'll hear your take on this verse and how you believe that it adds to the context. Okay, so... Um... What, what's interesting is, is um, my, my screen has frozen again, and, uh, and I'm horrible when it comes to technology, so I'm going to have to give you my version uh, from memory, and I haven't looked this up in the last several days, um, and so some of this information is going to be like, over there it says this, you need to look that up. Um, but, but essentially within the Psalm 51.5, the way, at least, at least as, as, as I lean presently, I'll put it that way. I, I think we can appeal to hyperbole. We can appeal to poetry. We can appeal to these rabbis, uh, although I'd rather not. But what you see in Psalm 51, uh, 5 is it's, it's set within the, the entire chapter of 51. The backdrop, uh, I believe, is, is pretty clear that it's 2 Samuel 12. Um, and David is there basically crying out to God in Psalm 51, confessing his sins and his blood guiltness, which we would say is, is Uriah. Uh, his sin is ever before him. That would be the murder, the adultery, uh, perhaps the uh, pregnant child that he's been told will, will pass. To God, and he's, he's a sin half of that child. Second Samuel 12. And he's asking that God would change, clearly that God is going to kill the child, but that the child will die as a result of those sins. That child was never really supposed to even exist. Um, if, if David had not sinned, that child would not have, have come into being. And yet uh, David is there on the floor pleading and interceding with God. He's fasting. He's not washing. He's not getting up off the floor. His servants are concerned about him. And so I believe that's the setting for Psalm 51. And so David is there on the floor. And if we read Psalm 51 in that light, we see him confessing all of these and crying out for God to not only forgive him, but also uh, spare this child. And I believe this was one of those uh, psalms that was likely uh, a result of that experience. But as you get into 51.5, behold, which basically just is like, look and see, not just, not just look, but to perceive it. So look and see, uh, and it says, uh, which is, is, as I said, is the Hebrew word for conceive, uh, it only speaks of human copulation one time in all of Scripture, and it's it's in this passage. Everywhere else it talks about copulation. It deals with animals and heat. So that's why some of the rabbis talk about uh, women menstruating. Uh, it talks about, you know, uh, sexual sins and enjoying it, because Yaham typically deals with animals and heat. There are two other non-understandings uh, for that term such as like the heat that comes from a blacksmith's furnace. So I don't think David is saying like, my mom smelted me into existence in a furnace. Um, 
And then the other one would be the heat or the rage that overtakes a manslayer to commit murder. And uh, and so I don't think David is saying I'm angry and ready to kill someone that she just got pregnant with me. So I think that the poet, the poet king, David, crass word to describe his own conception, it, I think that he's drawn a parallel as he's reflecting upon his own uh, adultery. Not to say that David committed adultery, but that there was some strong sexual sin there. And so when he uses the term yicham, um, essentially it's a, it's a strong sexual passion, uh, a sinful passion as we should, should understand it. So he's saying, look and see in a strong sexual passion, like an animal in heat, my mother conceived me uh, and she brought me forth in what you'll see is iniquity. But if you do a, a word search on iniquity, uh, you'll find that there is common ground there and, and there's a root origin where it deals with and shame women go through. So essentially, and that is a, a consequence of Genesis 3. That came up in the debate, all the consequences, but painful childbirth is a consequence. And so it's likely... Uh, that this is a call out to the pain and shame of a woman being exposed in labor. So as I, as I understand Psalm 51.5, he's saying, my mom sinned like an animal in heat, sinful passion, and gave birth to me exposed and shameful and, and in pain. Um, and as, as we consider, not necessarily the immediate context here, because I think we did that leading into this, but if we look at the, the broader context of David's life, we, sing, we see where the uh, drunks would sing songs mocking him. We see where his brothers didn't consider him a kinsman. And we see where when the prophet came to Jesse and said, bring out your sons. And so there was a, there was a question there. Um, and if you read about David's relationship with his mother, there's, there's, there's certainly uh, indicating some sort of familial trauma, some something that had occurred between uh, David, his mother, his brothers, and uh, and his father. That isn't explicitly stated in scriptures, but there is a, a long-held Jewish tradition that essentially, like Tamar, uh, went in and disguised herself and, and laid with, um, I don't have it in front of me, and it's a long night, but basically she disguised herself and went in and, and slept with uh, her father-in-law to, to conceive that uh, David's father had put his his mother away because he was concerned about the purity of, of marriage and and uh, the, the various relationships between Jews marrying non-Jews or people of mixed Jewish descent. So he sent his wife away, and uh, and she had gotten fed up and just and went into him like another woman. And there was this kind of primal uh, where they were just there. You know, to use a biblical phrase, knocking boots, and uh, it was it was just passionate, and that that resulted in him being conceived. Now they were married, but there was the sin of a of a disjointed relationship between uh, husband and wife and his mother, and so he was conceived in a sin because of the relationship problems, and yet he's saying God spared me, and I lived and. Please spare my child, uh, you know, in the same manner that you spared me. And so that's kind of the 
employer approach to understanding Psalm 51.5. I can't say that it's the only one that makes sense, but I will say that uh, an inherited sinfulness is next. It doesn't... Right, so it... ...or guilt or sin. You're breaking up just a little bit there. I, I, I guess you're uh, able to be understood for the most part, but that last part was kind of breaking up. Do you think there's any other reference in Psalms 51 to his unborn son, which uh, you said at the beginning, you believe this is before his unnamed son was killed by God and he's begging for his son. Do you see any other references in Psalms 51 to that son? Uh, you know, my screen froze again, but um, if you want to hold on, I'll, let me let me pull it up on my end. Can you still see me? Yeah, yes, absolutely. You're still moving around. You're, you're right, still... I'll... Okay, cool. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pull up. Uh, and I'll look at uh, Psalm 51. I'll use the ESV as well. Uh, this would make it a little bit easier because I was having to do all that with my screen frozen. Um, no, I don't. I don't believe there is. I don't believe there's any other uh, reference to the unborn son because uh, while David is crying out for his son. Ultimately, I believe he's also crying out for himself and uh, recognizing his responsibility in all, all of this. Yeah, so so my problems with your reading is uh, the same problems I have with the uh, period reading, like uh, you had sex near your period, is that uh, it doesn't seem to reinforce the context of what's going on here. Uh, if we have, we see a lot of eyes and me's, it's about my feelings, my transgressions, my position. Then all of a sudden there's a statement about, you know, I had this beginning, therefore save my son, which uh, throughout the whole whole chapter, you don't see similar calls. So I, I am and was of the opinion that this is post-child death at some point in David's life. And so you're reading that this is during right while he's suffering and weeping for his child. That's interesting to me. I don't. I'm not saying that you're wrong and I'm right or anything like that. But I always. I think yours is a very valid. I think yours is a very valid point. Like when we were talking earlier, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't throw yours out with with disregard and say, well, that just doesn't make sense. I think, I think that's a very valid reason uh, as well. So I, I wouldn't take any issue with that. All right. So I see a very personal thing there king david is focused on himself talking about himself and a statement right in smack dab in the middle of talking about himself his purification his sin a statement about someone else's sin that that seems out of place a statement about uh save my kid it's, it seems out of place because i that's it doesn't seem like the thrust of the text so so that's that's my problem with your reading and uh, I'll turn to Brueggemann's reading, and we could read what he says. But, but first, before we do that, I actually pulled up a couple other verses that I think could actually give us some sort of context about how I read this verse. Let's uh, go to my first one here. This is Job 31.5. And so Job, of course, he's an innocent man. The whole story is about Job being innocent, not, not deserving anything he gets. And... Uh, He's getting all this pain and infliction upon him from, from God, apparently from the story. And uh, he, he starts protesting his innocence. And he says this, For from my youth, my, the fatherless grew up with me as a father. 
and from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. Which, uh, if you think about this, uh, uh, you know, uh, there, uh, who Drew McLeod, he just had a baby. I don't think that baby's guiding any widows, right? I don't think my, my daughter behind me, uh, she, she's three and almost turning four. I don't think she's guided any widows. I, I think this is hyperbole declaring utter innocence from the beginning. It's not about a nature and character of man. It's not my DNA was perfect and uncorrupt. It's it's not about, um, you know, this, this uh, mankind's good and can't be evil. He's saying, in principle, I am a follower of Yahweh, worshiper of God from my youth, from the earliest times I can remember. This has been my character. So why am I suffering these great harms, these great evils? Is, is that your reading of Job 31.18? I'm, I'm reading it as, as we're talking, but I, I don't, I don't I, offhand, I'm not taking any issue with that, no, sir. All right. So the next one I'm going to turn to is actually King David. And uh, we got Psalms 22.10. And he's, he's talking and he's, he's praising God. And he says, On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. And so uh, we, we, we could go back to 22.9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. It doesn't seem like this. I don't think this is a contradiction with, with what we read in Psalms 51.5. And I don't think it's contradiction, even though they both have very similar language that is contrary. So if you're an atheist and you're looking for Bible contradictions, these are two verses that you're going to pull up and you're going to put them side by side and say, this one contradicts this one. This one says he was evil from his youth. And this one says he was good from his youth. Uh, I think what's instead happening is literary hyperbole. He's saying, in principle, I have followed you, God, from my youth, just just like God, or just like Job did with God in in Job. And so, using those same principles, let's read what Walter Brueggemann. Walter Brueggemann, he's a Hebrew scholar, well respected, and uh, a scholar of Job. I think I pulled this from his uh, not scholar of uh, Psalms. I think I pulled this from his Psalms book, and he says this. The statement of verse 5 can readily be misunderstood. It does not mean that sex is sinful, nor that this speaker has a perverted beginning, or that the mother is morally implicated. Rather, the speaker asserts that he is utterly guilty in principle from the beginning. There never was a time when the speaker was not so burdened. I take this to be not a clinical statement, but expression of theological candor, as the speaker exposes himself to God's righteousness. One may say that it is a piece of liturgical hyperbole, as is much of the Psalms. We do not need this to take, uh, take the statement ontologically as a doctrine of man, what is important is that in this moment of drastic confrontation, the speaker has no claim. There is indeed no health in him. I think that last sentence there, what is important, what is important is that in this moment of drastic confrontation, the speaker has no claim. There is indeed no health in him. I think, I think Walter Bergerman is looking at this like a trial, a pleading. This is a, uh, this is David. He's laying his heart out to God. And he says, there's nothing good in me, Lord. I, I'm so evil. Look at this terrible thing I've done. Uh, in principle, I, I'm, I'm thoroughly corrupt. Uh, please wash me, uh, change me, uh, tur turn me pure. 
purify my soul, make me whole. And it's, it's, it's pleading out to God. It's, it's, it's uh, putting utter humility before God for God to reform. And not a statement about man, not a statement about our DNA, not the total depravity. It is uh, laying yourself bare and open. That's how I read this. Yeah, I, I think I think that there's there's certainly a, a reasonable view. I don't dis, I don't disregard it, you know, off the cuff. View that I, I think is also necessarily um, expressed, or maybe maybe it was was just simply that maybe that there was some sort of ritual um, corruption that uh, that the, the time in which he was born or the manner in which he was born. Uh, you know that there was some sort of uncleanliness that had occurred there, just via the the ritual purification laws, given the con context of being purged with hyssop and purified. So that that's another view as well. So there, there's multiple here that just do not call out for saying that I was born spiritually dead, guilty, and sinful. So I think there's a, a plethora of, of understanding here that we just don't have to go there, uh, and I think. That's critical because it's it's just not stated in the text, right? Absolutely, I, I think it there it parallels the same concepts that we see elsewhere in the Bible. People uttering utter lostness or utter solidarity with God from the womb. It, this this is normal speech. We, we see it throughout. God uses this language of Israel. It's from your youth. You are like this. It, it's normal hyperbole. It doesn't have to be mean that he came out. Smoking and drinking. I don't know. A picture of a baby who's, I don't know. It's not always literal. I mean, we're dealing with the poet King. I mean, there's going to be great um, creativity in what he's writing and, and the words that he's choosing mm -hmm. and he's laying all of this out. And if we take a literal uh, approach to a poem, um, I'm I, 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 like I grew up on Star Trek and I'm just imagining Spock, you know, reading. Um, you know, like Whitman or something. It's just, <laughs> you know, you, that's not how you're supposed to approach the subject matter. Or that Guardians of the Galaxy guy who doesn't understand idioms. Like, uh, that went over <laughs> right. your head. And he's like, it went over my head. I'm tall. I can't, you know, I don't know. But it seems to me, seems to me that David is talking about himself. Uh, he's utterly lost, utterly broken. And he's laid himself out to God. And in other Psalms, when he feels closeness to God, that means he's with God from his youth, from the womb. He he was God's. Just just like Job, Job, Job wasn't a baby guiding widows. Um, and uh, King David wasn't a baby hurting widows. Those two things are not, I don't think they're allowed in the text, even though a literal reading might allow it. Yeah, I mean, you, you've got to you've got to be careful for the subject matter in the context that you're reading, and you want to you want to handle that you know critically, and you don't want to just be flippant with it and uh, take a wooden literalism to a to a poem. Um, you've got to be very careful there. So, so the concluding our conversation, here are my thoughts. Uh, it's really dangerous to proof text, and so if if you want a doctrine about total depravity. It's a huge mistake to turn to a certain proof text and say, see, this means my theology, and then you move on to a different proof text without proving from context that that's what's going on in your text. 
And so I, it, it seems to be fairly common with Calvinists when, when you're debating them on any issue, they'll hit you with 20 different proof texts and you have to turn to each one of them and start uh, going through and saying, this doesn't really say the thing that you're saying. I think that was one thing in your debate that uh, you could have you could have stressed a little bit harder is that you're the one who wanted to look at the context of his proof text. He didn't show that his proof text meant his claims. And yeah. uh, I Psalms 51.5 is an exercise in uh, humility in proof texting, not to just woodenly, uh, militantly assume your own reading, as Calvin does, as a lot of Calvinists do, anyone who proof texts this verse for total depravity. It's a bad exercise in reading comprehension and biblical study. Do you have any uh, concluding parting thoughts on that? As, as we're talking about this uh, passage and its role on the greater scheme of total depravity, when I, when I was coming out of Calvinism, um, and, and when I say that, I mean how I went from being a staunch uh, five-point diehard Calvinist to crying in a corner not knowing what was true anymore. But um, when, I, when I was undergoing that about hour and a half uh, rapid decompression, this was one of the very first proof texts that I ran to. So I started in Genesis, and that began my undoing. And when I started seeing total depravity slip away, I immediately ran to Psalm 51.5, thinking that some sort of shelter in the storm and, and say, no, Warren, it's okay. Uh, God really creates us all sinful in the womb. And it just wasn't there. There are a dozen different ways to understand this, but it being literal. You know, all, all iniquity. Okay, what, what's iniquity? And in sin did my mother conceive the conceiving? Who did the sinning? And if, if you're just taking a, even let's say we're taking a very literal view of a poem, it, it doesn't say what the claims of total depravity say. So, um, you know, that it, it's regrettable that this has become the linchpin in so many arguments for that doctrine because it's just clearly not uh, a biblical defense for it. it. It's just not an articulation. It's just nothing there. And of course, one of my big problems, it's a really bad idea to take uh, very personal verses and then export them to all of humanity as if uh, we are King David. It's like right. this, happen this happened to one guy one time, therefore all men are totally depraved. That's and exactly it. That's exactly it. I mean, you know, Jeremiah, you know, we could say, uh, before I formed you in the womb, womb I knew you and, and it's like oh well, you know God knew me before he formed Jeremiah I mean you, you can take these things to really ridiculous extremes and um, you know you, 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 yeah you're absolutely right uh, yeah, it was, it was funny. I, I was uh, talking to a Calvinist on one of these debates, and we we're talking about uh, Psalms one thirty nine, and he says that uh, it says God knows all our thoughts before we say them. I said, no, it doesn't. I I'll bet you on it. I bet you a hundred bucks. I don't know if I said that, but I'll bet you a hundred bucks. It doesn't say that God know knew you and I what we are going to say before we say it, because it's it's King David. King David's talking about himself, and people they just they just read stuff. And their, their automatic thing is, oh, this applies to everyone. This applies to me. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, but you have to have more of a reason other than you just really want it to be about yourself. I, well, and then, and then 139 is really bad for that position because it requires that the Lord search to know and being determinist, that completely unhinges their arguments. 
Yeah, it's, it's another another case of bad proof texting. I really want my theology. Where's the verse that kind of reads similar to what I want? Let's grab it. Let's not explore context and just claim it means what it, yeah, I, I want it to mean. And so yeah. I, I think Psalms, 150, or Psalms 51, 5 is a great exercise in reading comprehension and exploring alternative readings, valid readings, and just understanding the scope of what one proof text can be taken to mean. That the, the readings probably are literally infinite. There's probably an infinite number of readings, not, not all of them as probable as each other, but uh, probably an infinite number of possible readings. Amen. And, and, and like it is, it, just considering the, the context here, renew in me a right spirit. It doesn't say give me a new spirit for the first time. Um, there's there's all sorts of context clues that this does not. Yeah, that, that, real quick before we conclude, yeah, that does that does go with one of my other criticisms of Calvinism is uh, their proof texts seem to be compartmentalized. And so if you look at the surrounding points of any of their proof texts or even their proof texts themselves, it doesn't jive with their other theology. Their single youth's proof text. Their proof text is used to mean one point of their theology with, uh, without consideration of how it might contradict other points of their theology. So the very limited use proof text. I think it's, I think it's a little funny. But we will, yeah, we will conclude there. Uh, I won't, won't try to cut you off again. I'll let you do some closing thoughts, and then we'll end there. I, I, I really uh, in, enjoy your thoughts on this. I'm glad that we're able to come in and uh, consider it in. So without uh, being so dogmatic or uh, ridiculous that we put our heads in the sand and, and we say that uh, it has to be this way or the other way. But really, we're just trying to ascertain truth. And uh, we're looking at the scriptures. We're trying to understand the context, who, who the author is, what his motivations are, what's going on in the immediate and broader context, what words is he using, the grammar that he's choosing. Is there any other uh, thing getting back to or that he's looking towards? Um, all of these things have to be considered and weighed in order to have a right understanding of, of scripture rather than just go, Oh, this talks about being born, and it looks like he's sinful, so we'll just go with that. Um, it's a dangerous approach, but what you find, and this is really what my whole ministry is, is centered around, is pointing out how we've taken, and I say we, I mean just Christianity in general. Uh, we've taken the scriptures, and we've carved and whittled them up to form an idol uh, that suits our own desires of what we want God to be like. And so proof texting, when you don't have regard for the context, you go, I want a God who created me sinful in the womb, and I'm going to rip passages out of place in order to whittle away scripture until what's left is more akin to my liking. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very dangerous. Proof texting is a dangerous thing to do if, if you care about the integrity of the Bible. If you don't care about the integrity of the Bible, that uh, might be another issue. But we'll conclude there. I thank you for coming on. I enjoyed our discussion. We'll have to have uh, some more discussions in the future. You should probably upgrade your internet to the next uh, level of speed so that there's not uh, those little breakups or anything. I know you're having technical problems in the JD debate as well, where sometimes you'd pause a little bit and everyone would be like, is he still there? And then there's all, all these questions. So upgrade your internet. That's this your takeaway. Team, team this is what? 
This is AT&T Fiber. AT&T, you failed us. Uh, they're <laughs> they're typically the better ones. I don't know. But uh, we'll conclude there. If anyone has any thoughts or comments, put them down below in uh, the comments or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook group. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>